A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him, And forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think about uh, this parable uh, that Jesus used to teach about forgiveness, that you would help us to know uh, what it means, how we might apply it uh, to our own lives, our own community, our own experiences. And we pray especially that we would be forgiving as you have forgiven us. So lead us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. So this summer we're looking at uh, the parables, and Jonathan uh, Davis kicked us off in that series, and uh, it did a very beautiful job, Jonathan. Thank you so much for that. Um, and one of the things that we've seen from week to week is that there's a lot of beauty in the parables, right? There's a lot of, um, they're, they're art form, really. They're a story, and so they invite us into their space as a very different way of learning about and thinking about, uh, even to some degree experiencing God's kingdom come, his gracious presence, and his sense of justice or judgment. Um, So there's beauty, there's an engagement, but parables are also hard uh, because most of us operate in this left brain bias. Do you know what I mean? 
In the left brain, we sort of hang on to rational thought. We want very clear-cut, black-and-white answers to things. And parables don't give us that very often, right? They, uh, they're, they're murky. We're wading around in them. We're identifying with different characters. They're, they're very much a right-brain kind of activity that uh, Jesus invited his people then and now into that we might experience and think about God's kingdom, his grace, his justice. Um, Jonathan used the analogy of a mural, right? You're, it's another art form. So you're driving through the neighborhood and you see the mural. And on different days or different occasions or different circumstances in your lives, you see different things in the mural and it strikes you in different ways. This is a parable about forgiveness, um, uh, God's forgiveness and our forgiveness. Uh, and so I thought it might be helpful as we start thinking about forgiveness if we just call to mind something concrete. So I'd like for you to think about a relationship, a real one, that you have lived in or that you're currently in, in which you have needed either to ask forgiveness or you've needed to extend forgiveness. So uh, you, you're, you're the offender, right? You've hurt, you've harmed someone, you've done something, you've failed to love well. Or on the other side of it, you're, you're the person who's feeling the lack of love. You feel and experience the hurt, the harm that's come your way inside of some relationship. Now, the moment you begin to frame it that way, what do you know about forgiveness? It feels impossible, right? I mean, whatever side of forgiveness, this work, this project of forgiveness that you find yourself on or in, in a relationship, it can feel very impossible. If you're the person who's offended, um, Sometimes the last thing that I want to do when I'm in the wrong is just be vulnerable about that. I want to, you know, manager tuck, you know, steps into action, right? You know, here's how I spin this. Here's how I work this. Here's the angle I'm going to take on this. And just so on and so forth. And you know that too. It's hard for us to be vulnerably present alongside of one another as fellow sinners or debtors. It's hard for us to look into those challenging parts of our own story because we'd rather live with the illusions of ourselves. Now, on the other side of it, if you're the person who's been hurt, forgiveness feels impossible to you as well. Even though you read stories like this or you read places in Scripture where Jesus is urging us to be forgiving toward one another, we know that if we've ever been hurt by someone, it is so difficult to let it go. It's just so much easier to just remember that offense every time I see you, every prompting. And so emotionally or symbolically to become the person in the relationship who's always extracting the payment of your failure from you, right? Do you know that tension in your relationship? I mean, am I the only one who does this, right? You do it too. We all do this. Forgiveness can feel quite impossible. There's something, I think, very miraculous about the work of forgiveness when it happens between individuals or when it happens inside of groups or communities or between ethnic uh, spaces or racial division. There's something really miraculous when you discover it happening and you see it unfolding. You think there's something supernatural about that. This parable um, shows us how central the practices of forgiveness are to God's kingdom, uh, to the economy of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So think about this same idea. You know, every week when we get to that part of our liturgy, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, we stumble through that line, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
That's a hard line to say sometimes, some Sundays more than others perhaps, but one of the things that Jesus does in, in, in giving that line inside of that prayer is he very intimately weds our practices of forgiveness with God's practices of forgiveness. Our experiences of God's forgiveness should lead us to become a different kind of people, and this parable that Jesus teaches is really about that connection between God's forgiveness and our own practice of forgiveness. One commentator that I was reading on this particular parable, he says, at some point he says, you know, as challenging as this parable may feel at times, or even uh, conflicting, we may, you know, the conflicts we may feel about this parable, he says, the most for, this is probably the most forceful teaching on how Christians should actually be living their life together in our world. I thought that was an interesting statement. Um, and as you look around the church and you think about our failures, our participation and in politics, our participation in the world at large, you recognize that forgiveness is a hard story for us as well, isn't it? So let's think about it. So first, what is the context? You know, often with these parables, it's so easy uh, to just sort of extract them because they're nice encapsulated stories that Jesus has given, and they're easy for us to sort of you know, port out of the building with us on the after, you know, when we leave. We take the, the, the parable with us. We take the story with us, and we remember it. But it's so easy to sort of forget that Jesus gave the story in the context of other interactions he was having with his disciples or the community as a whole. And so here's the interesting thing about this particular context. It is situated in Matthew chapter 18. And so persons that are familiar with Matthew know that when you hear Matthew 18, you think, church discipline. Now, maybe you weren't thinking about that as we read the parable, but that's because you disassociate the parable from its context, right? We all do that. But Matthew is telling this story that Jesus told in the context of interactions that Jesus was having about what the church should do when there's sin between us, when we hurt one another, when we harm one another, and his teaching on forgiveness as it relates to that. So if you're familiar with Matthew 18 or some of that process, you know that the way it goes is something very simply like this. If your brother or sister sins against you, the thing you should do is you should talk to them. That makes sense. This is a no-brainer at this point. You, you go to someone and you say, hey, you've hurt me. You've harmed me in some way, right? So what is, what is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us that there's a transparency in the way we relate to one another now. We stop hiding we stop withdrawing, but we actually engage one another around the real stuff of life, the real stuff of our relationship. And then he goes on and he says that if, if, if your brother or your sister doesn't listen to you, you should take a friend. In other words, it's not enough. You need some sort of mediating presence of another to help you have this conversation, to help you hear one another, to help you listen to one another, to help you move through this work of forgiveness, which includes confrontation. And then he goes on and he says that if the two or the three that go with you, the, the, the sort of the, the friendly mediators that you have with you, your friends or more mature Christians, uh, if that doesn't help, it doesn't work, this friend of yours isn't connecting, it's not, they're not listening, they're not getting it, they're not moving forward, uh, take it to the church. And that's where things get really messy when we begin to think about this practice of church discipline. And Jesus says, even then, if they don't listen, treat them as a Gentile or a sinner. And this is probably where the church has fully misunderstood and misapplied the teaching of Jesus. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and sinners? He engaged. 
He ate meals with them. He represented the love of God to them, and so on and so forth. There's something really beautiful in these words. There's something really honest here because Jesus lets us know that just because you've come inside the church in some discernible way, you've connected with the story of Christ, that your relationships aren't magically beautiful, but rather they remain hard at times. We bump into each other, we hurt each other, and Jesus gives us some very practical ways of thinking about what love requires or what love would look like in those circumstances of challenge, but always in the context of a God who seeks the lost, a God who loves, a God who pursues, a God who forgives. Um, he calls us really to a space and a practice of honest vulnerability and humility and courage and tough love with one another. He goes on to speak of the remarkable power that the church has been given to actually reflect the connection between heaven and earth. Because it's that little space where Jesus says those remarkable things that when two or three of you gather in his name, there he is in, his, in, in your midst. And so that which you bind or you loose, in other words, as you're going through this process of interacting with one another, with transparency, with humility, with an awareness of God who seeks the lost, that which you do should reflect heaven. What do we reveal to the world about God. A friend of mine, a mentor, Joe Novenson, some of you know him, you've heard me talk about him before, but he says that our lives are sermons in shoes. That's a scary proposition because it means that there's something to be seen in the way we live life together, and it is a demonstration of the story of Christ. The story that Jesus is talking about here has to do with honest connections and interactions between people that lead to real honest experiences of forgiveness, not just with God, but with one another. It must confuse the disciples because Peter goes on to ask Jesus about forgiveness. It's that famous place where he says, well, okay, what's the limit on forgiveness? If someone sinned against me, how often do I need to forgive them? What about seven times? That's a perfect biblical number. It sounds really whole and nice. What about seven times, Jesus? And Peter thinks he's done a great job, and Jesus says, no, not seven. How about 77? And the point isn't there to put a cap on forgiveness, but rather just to sort of extend the limit and say, look, the sky's the limit, Peter. God is a God who forgives, and we reflect that back into the world. That's the context in which we come to the parable that we're looking at this morning, a story of forgiveness. So what is this story of forgiveness? There are three scenes, the king's forgiveness, the servant's failure to forgive, the king's judgment. Now think about the king's forgiveness. The king in this story is settling his accounts. The king has a right to do that. It's the economy of the day. We may not like this sort of language of slave and master or king, uh, but that was the context in which Jesus is telling the story, and it's the story he chose to tell. And he says this scenario in which the king chooses to call in his debts, and he chooses someone who owes a great deal of money, 10,000 talents. So I think of that, 10,000 talents, you know, is that like $10,000? It doesn't sound like a lot of money. You graduate from college, you've got a lot more debt than that, right? Right? Um, so to get this number into perspective, let's just sort of pull it through some of the commentary around this. So one talent would be about 6,000 denarii, right, uh, as, as I'm reading and told. Uh, and so essentially this guy's debt is about 60 million denarii, okay? 
And so a servant or a slave would typically earn about one denarii per day. All right, so this is putting this in perspective, right? So in other words, it would take about 164,000 years to repay this debt, right, on that salary, right? Uh, put it in another perspective, King Herod is supposedly said to have earned about 90, 900 talents per year, all right? So this guy owes 10,000 talents, to pull this in, you know, to pull Jesus' hyperbole, if you will, into our moment, what's going on here? It's like he says, hey, he calls in the guy that owes him a billion dollars. He calls in the guy that owes him a billion dollars. And so the crowd that's listening to this, of course, what are they thinking? They're thinking what you're thinking. That's just ridiculous. Right? I mean, I can't imagine owing a billion dollars. I can't imagine owing money like that. Right? And I can't imagine ever imagining that I could repay a debt like that. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make, that this is an impossible circumstance, right? The servant is overwhelmed uh, because the, the, the king has sort of basically said, so I'm going to repossess your life and all that you have and everything for the next 100,000 years. I mean, it's like, this just is like ridiculous at, at one level. The servant is overwhelmed, then you would be overwhelmed as well. The crowd is overwhelmed, perhaps. He pleads for mercy. He falls to his knee. As, and then he says this unusual thing, that he will find a way to repay this debt, right? And that should be the first clue, right, that this guy is still not living in reality. That he's unaware that there's a little bit of delusional thinking in the way he thinks about what is owed or not owed and what is needed in this particular circumstance. Because he still seems to be saying, even in that plea for mercy, I got this. I can manage this. I can handle this. The fascinating thing about this story is the Disney-esque turn because the king who had every right to extract that which is owed to him is moved to pity. And he forgives the debt. He releases the guy from the billion dollars. So this horrible situation has turned suddenly beautiful. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable. So one question I have for you is this. How much does it cost to forgive this debt? 10,000 talents. If I ask you if I could borrow your car, and I drive your car through the streets of Philadelphia, not always a happy proposition, but I'm driving your car, and I run through a stop sign. There are lots of four-way stops in our neighborhood. I run through one of those stop signs, and I smash into another car, and you say, you know, it's okay, Tuck. You don't worry about it, I got it. I would say, that's awesome, thank you. How much did that forgiveness, that act of forgiveness cost you? It cost you whatever your deductible was. It cost you whatever it cost to repair the, the car or it cost you your image of just driving a smashed up car. I mean, it cost you. Our debts are costly. Robert Farrar Capon says of this particular parable, that in this parable, the king who has operated in the economy of law drops it. And he instead begins to take up a rule, if you will, of grace and of mercy as the new rule of the land, the new rule of the day. The king lets go of one way of being human, one way of living inside of his relationships, inside of obligations, and he embraces an alternative, a very different way of living inside of our relationships. The debt is paid. 
So you're standing in the crowd and you begin to hear this story and you're through the first scene. What's going on in your mind? I mean, you know, what are you thinking about in that moment? I'll tell you what I'd be thinking about. I'd be thinking, well, I wish I was that guy. Or I might be thinking, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to live in a world of mercy? What would that be like if in my interactions, in any context of life, the rule is not law, but the rule is mercy and grace? What would that feel like to be in a space like that, in a realm like that? And that's Jesus' point, to get us to think and ask those kinds of questions. Who wouldn't want a world like that to exist, and who wouldn't want to exist inside of that world? The story isn't over because we end up in scene two, and the guy is just leaving this moment in which he's essentially won the lottery, right? The greatest lottery that's, that he could have played, it's just, it's unfolded before him. There's no debt. He's completely free in every manner of the word, right? Uh, and and he, he runs into someone who owes him, but owes him less, a few hundred dollars. And the guy's impulse here in this particular moment is to extract that which he is owed from this person. And when the guy can't pay it, the fellow servant, I think it's interesting that he's referred to as a fellow slave. St. Augustine says that the best way for us to know one another as human beings is to stand alongside of each other as fellow sinners. He seeks to extract the payment from his fellow slave far less than that which he owed. But he is operating not on the new order of the day of grace and mercy, but on the old order of the law of the land. Our lives tell a story. They're sermons and shoes. And that's what's happening in this second scene of the parable. And what's intriguing is that the fellow debtors observe the incongruity between the way this guy is sort of experiencing his grace and relating the same story to his fellow debtors. So they go and they tell on him. So we end up in this final scene of the story, which is the hardest of all. And it's the scene of judgment where the king, having heard the story, the witness of the fellow servants who says, hey, he's not doing what you did. He's doing the opposite. He's holding his fellow debtors accountable and he's received so much. The hypocrisy of it in their mind is just so at the top, right? And it would be in your mind as well. So the king goes back to this, this now unmerciful servant, and he declares him to be wicked because he didn't extend the same kind of mercy that he had received. The king resurrects the debt, and the guy is tortured for life. And then Jesus says this very severe statement, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and sister from the heart. Whoa. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Hard words from Jesus. Remember that Matthew is framing this within the interactions that Jesus is having with his disciples. How many times do I need to forgive someone? What do I do when someone sins against me? How do I handle the sin between us? I think this story 
is pushing us to lean into and remember the agency that God gives us as forgiven debtors. To go out and do likewise. To go out and reveal the mercy of the Father to other people, to the world in the context of our real relationships. You know, don't, don't hold this Christian truth as an abstraction. Don't hold it inside your head as just theory. Don't hold it inside of your head as a nice piece of theology to sort of hold on to and think about in times of despair. But rather, take it seriously and act on it. You're the debtor. And God in his mercy has said, you are forgiven. Go and do likewise. I think the story pushes us to think about God's future. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the arc of history is moving toward justice. And so he could stay in the moment of his activity, of his justice seeking, not because he saw all of the moments as successful or producing the kind of end result that he desired, but because he believed what? That God is a God who is interacting with his people, seeking the lost, the lostness that shows up in the injustices of the world, and he is moving history to the conclusion of his heavenly kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And what Jesus here, I think, shows us about that future, about that kingdom, about that arc of justice, is that it will include mercy. It will include a place in which the sin is forgiven, in which we extend the same. We embody, in other words, that which we've experienced from God in our own relationships. So every week we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because as we were singing just a little bit earlier, what we really desire is that in every interaction, whether I'm the person who who needs forgiveness, or I'm the person who needs to extend forgiveness, that I'm revealing the mercy of God. And what does that mean except something like this, that if you're inside of some space of relationship in which you need to ask forgiveness or you need to extend forgiveness, what does this mean for you in these real places of life? It means that if you're a person who's experienced the love of God, who seeks you as a lost person and who finds you, and who declares you forgiven, it means that you can look at your hard story. You can have the courage, you can actually look at the darkest parts of your own life because your righteousness, your peace, your joy is not bound up in the identity that you manage or create for yourself, but it is bound up in the forgiveness of your king who loves you, who seeks you, who finds you, who forgives you. And what does that mean except that I can look at the reality that I am a sinner? I can acknowledge the brokenness that is in my life, the brokenness that I bring to real relationships. I can, with some greater authenticity, stand beside you as a fellow sinner. And in that space, I'm not trying to one-up you, thinking I've got, a, you know, I've got a leg up on you. And I'm not also going sort of this false humility space of one-downing you, thinking that, you know, sort of pretending like you've got a leg up on me. But the cross has leveled us. God has forgiven me my 10,000 talents. And so my hope for you is that he'll forgive your 10,000 talents. 
And if I'm sinning against you, that you will come to me and you will say, hey, Tuck, that hurt me. And I'm willing to look at it. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to look at the darkness of my own soul. And if I'm on the side that needs to forgive, I remember what? That I did not get into this relationship with God by virtue of my management of it. I didn't manage myself into the kingdom of God. I was graciously welcomed into the kingdom of God, forgiven my debts. And so what does that mean for the way I might relate to you in the space in which you've hurt me? It means that maybe I can remember that I stand here by grace, and so I can look for grace to be operative in your life as well. Jesus is talking about these real spaces of relationship inside of this parable of the unforgiving servant. Does God's forgiveness shape the way you live with your story? Does his forgiveness shape the the way you live with the story of others? This parable is pushing us and really inviting us, enticing us to sort of see ourselves in this space and ask ourselves, how would we act if we were the ones forgiven so great a debt? The world that God is bringing, the world that would endure the right side of history, if you will, is a merciful space of forgiveness, of God seeking the lost. So as we were singing earlier, when they see us, what do they see? What do we reveal about God through our interactions? Our lives are a sermon in shoes, a story that is told and enacted and embodied in the world that says something about what God has done in Jesus. And that's what the story is teaching us to think about. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have looked on human beings, people like us, our world in all of its complexity, in all of its pain, in all of its lostness, in its ruin, and you refused to give up on us. But you sought us and you found us, and in Jesus Christ you have provided and opened a way that we might be forgiven and raised up to a very new way of living our own human lives. So meet us and give us hope where we need it this morning, and give us courage where we need it this morning, and remind us more than anything that we are beloved children of God because you have cared for us in Jesus. Meet us, we ask in our worship in his name. Amen.